You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. psalm this morning is Psalm 130. Out of the depths have I called to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears consider well the voice of my supplication. If you, Lord, were to note what is done amiss, O Lord, who could stand? For there is forgiveness with you, therefore you shall be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for him. In his word is my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, wait for the Lord. For the Lord there is mercy. With him there is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all their sins. A reading from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 5. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for for twelve years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for he said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they all laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and the mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
May I speak to you this morning in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Man, this this morning's gospel reading has so much to it. It's a classic Mark and Sandwich. Have you heard this term? Mark likes to shove stories in between other stories, right? And it's so dense. There's all kinds of odd things. Like, how can Jesus feel power going out from him and not know what's going on? Like, there's, there's so much here that I would love to dive in and, and explain each piece, but I'm going to resist doing that today because <laughs> there's a lot. But instead, what really caught my mind or caught my attention this week um, reminded me of one of my favorite songs by one of my favorite kind of obscure artists, Sufjan Stevens. And it's in uh, one of his most popular albums called Illinois, titled Cashmere Pulaski Day. And in this song, he, like any great musician, tells a beautiful story about a young girl that gets cancer of the bone. And despite the, all the efforts, she did not survive. And woven in the middle of this story is his and her young adolescent uh, uh, love affair beginning to bloom. In the midst of death, there's still life. The song goes a little bit like this. It begins and then tells the story of the father who for seemingly uncharacteristic break, breakdown takes his dying daughter to the Navy Pier. And then Sufjan says this, in the morning through the window shade. And despite Edie always singing to y'all, you're not going to get that this morning. I'm going to read the words to you. In the morning, through the window shade, when the light pressed up against your shoulder blade, I could see what you were reading. All the glory that the Lord has made and the complications you could do with that when I kissed you on the mouth. And then in verse 3, he talks about how they approached it through their faith. Tuesday night at the Bible study, we lift our hands and pray over your body but nothing ever happens. All the glory that the Lord has made and the complications when I see his face in that morning in the window, all the glory when he took our place and he took my shoulders and he shook my face and he takes and he takes and he takes. This morning we hear two different stories people being miraculously healed by Jesus when they're at the end of their rope. And this week, I couldn't help but wonder, why don't we experience that sometimes, most of the time? How are we to respond when, like Sufyan says, he took my shoulders and shook my face, and he takes, and he takes, and he takes? Why didn't Jesus respond when I needed a miracle? And despite the hope that we hear in this passage of when these two, uh, 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 this woman and this girl experienced these great miracles, our Psalms reading, our reading from Psalm 130, tells us more of the general experience of not only the Hebrews who wrote it, but our life in the De Profundis. Psalm 130 starts with those words. De Profundis, it says. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. De profundis. See, when the Hebrews wanted to explain and to give an analogy for the chaos that is in the world all around us and the chaos that is in us in these moments of, of chaos, they looked to the ocean. 
They looked to the chaos of that great sea, and they said, out of the depths of the waters, I cry to you, O Lord. De profundis. This word, this term, out of the depths, uh, illustrates all that is the uncontrollable chaos, the anxiety, the helplessness, all that is our experience of death the same kind of concept we get at the beginning of creation when God orders all of creation, or Jonah in the, way, in, 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 in the ocean in the whale and the disciples in the boat just before Jesus calms the seas. And so this morning, what I want to look at and what I want to tease out from this passage and, and to reflect honestly is this concept, that faith is the response of the religious mind when fear is a reaction to an unknown future to an unknown future. How do we respond in faith when the future is unknown? And I want to tease a little bit of this. Keep your eyes on Jairus this morning. Keep your eyes on Jairus, because he's the one that originally comes to Jesus, the synagogue leader who has a bit of a pedigree and talks Jesus into coming, and Jesus is on his way to heal, right? And then the story is interrupted. If you're in the midst of your story being interrupted today, in the midst of a day profundest moment where you feel out of the depths, this psalm is the prayer for you. And this story, I pray, will give you some context for the rest of your story. So how do we respond in faith? Before we can respond in faith, we have to understand two ways that we sabotage our faith. The first way is this, denial. Denial. Now, denial is is essentially the false implementation of hope. It is the taking of hope and shoving it in a place that it doesn't quite belong. Because God only meets us in reality. God only meets us in the reality of the truth of where we really are. So in order to maybe tease this out a little bit more for you and give you a little insight in that, I want to tell you a story that I've told you before. You'll probably hear this story a lot. It's from a, a guy named Admiral Jim Stockdale and the Stockdale Paradox. Admiral Jim Stockdale was one of the first POWs of the Vietnam War and spent the majority of the war in a prisoner of war camp. And yet he was one of the few that came out alive on the other side. And in interviewing him, a journalist asked him, how did you do it? And he said, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn experience into the defining event of my life, which in re retrospect, I would not trade. And I asked, who didn't make it out? Oh, that's easy, he said, the optimists. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go, and then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then it would be Christmas again, and they eventually died of a broken heart. This is a very important lesson, Stockdale said. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. The Stockdale Paradox. And so we sabotage our own faith when we step in and input hope where hope does not quite belong, where it overrides the current reality. We do this by premature expectation of miracles, right? Something gets crazy bad, and sometimes we, we, we want to gloss over, and here's a word for it, spiritual bypassing. Rather than really take in honesty what our situation is, we want to take and jump immediately to the future. God's got it under control. 
Everything happens for a reason, right? Spiritual bypassing that sometimes does not take into, into ourselves the reality of the current situation. But the Christian faith does not pursue shallow optimism. This kind of hope is easily jarred when worsening circumstances prevail. The knee-jerk, blind optimism that seeks to skip over the pain of the now is not what we hear from these two people in the text this morning. They were at their wit's end. They felt like there was nothing left, but they still sought out Jesus. They were, they were honest about the reality that they were in. Verse 26, listen, listen to the, the woman's story uh, with the, the, the hemorrhaging for 12 years. Verse 26, she had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. That doesn't sound like shallow optimism. That sounds like she has grappled with her situation and done everything she knows to do by seeking out everybody that had an answer. And she was still left with the struggle that put her outside of the community. And then she hears the story of this miracle worker walking around Israel. And she went with the last hope and the last chance that Jesus may in some way be able to restore her to wholeness of life. This wasn't the attitude of, let's just give this a shot. But this was the attitude of, this is all that I have left. And it appears that she had confident trust in the Jesus who was able to remedy her hopeless situation. But we also sabotage our faith in another way, through despair, which on the flip side of denial, despair is the denying any possibility of hope. It is the, instead of sitting in hope that someday I will prevail in the end, despite the hardness of the circumstances, it is the choosing to look a little more deeply into the fear and to nurture the fear that things are not going to be all right and that maybe Jesus isn't present and that maybe Jesus isn't good. It's the choice in that moment. Not a choice to, to choose fear over faith, because don't miss this, fear is never absent from faith but it's the choice to sit and to lean more into the fear than it is in the faith. Verse 35, I'll remind you again, keep your eyes on Jairus. Keep your eyes on Jairus. His story is often our story. Remember that today as we sit in this question. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus is on his way to Jairus. Life seemed like it was going to work out fine. And then there's an interruption. And this woman, who has clearly no real hope, who isn't at death's doorstep, just has a, some kind of bleeding that is causing a major insignificance in her life, interrupts the urgency and the emergency that is his dying daughter. And Jesus stops and turns around. How dare he? There's an emergency. Come on, right now, we don't have much time. And he has the gusto to ask, who touched me in a crowd? Say the disciples. Can you imagine how angry Jairus must have been? That miracle was supposed to be for my little girl. She's the one who had all the life ahead of her. And you turned around? Deep sadness accompanied with rage. I can imagine... 
that this must have been what Jairus was feeling. And then to be told by the friends that came and told him, don't trouble the teacher any further. I think sometimes I can feel that tendency as well. In the midst of hardship and pain, when we're expecting something to go well, and it turns the other direction, and it's this tendency to despair and to cut off all hope of hope and to not trouble the teacher any further. But keep your eye on Jairus. Despite this rage and this anger and this sadness and this fear that I can just imagine that he's in the midst of, he stays walking with Jesus and goes on further when Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. See, this is where we typically end our story. This is where we typically get the most vocal about our anger with God. When we're in Jairus's place and the worst has come, and we feel it didn't have to. And yet we're left with the circumstances of that tragedy. But faith and fear are not opposites. Faith is the response of the religious mind when fear is the continued reaction to an unknown future. A response or a reaction. Do you understand the difference there? Response and reaction. But first, I want to, I want to, before we really dive into what's going on there, I want to tease out a little bit of what a miracle is. What is a miracle? How do they take place? How are we to think of the miracles when we read this in the scriptures? Uh, I like how Thomas Aquinas kind of talks about miracles when he says, miracles are the intensification of what is possible in the natural order, right? Think about what's going on with the woman. It's not like all of a sudden she sprouted fairy wings and flew off, right? She was healed. Her bleeding stopped. This is a possibility in what is in the natural order. But what it does, it condenses all of the hope and all of the possibilities of what the future may bring, and it intensifies them in one particular moment with Jesus. Intensifies them in one particular moment. So... Also, at the same time, when we read of miracles in the Gospels, they tell us this. We see this about with the Gospel writers. The Gospel writers place more emphasis on the theological significance of the sign, of the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God, than on the disease and the cure themselves. In other words, the miracle that takes place participates in the reality to which it points. The miracle that takes place participates in the truth and the reality that God's kingdom is coming into the world, that the revolution has begun. The king has come. He has set up residence with his church and with his Holy Spirit, and the kingdom is infiltrating every corner of creation, and every corner of creation is beginning to be redeemed, but we're still in the middle of the story. And the miracle is this intensification of the truth that the reality is of the kingdom is coming. The rapid inbreaking of the progressive reality of the kingdom of God. So if that's true with, the, the, with the, the woman's miracle, it's equally true of the raising of Jairus' daughter. How can that be? How can that be? If, if miracles are the intensification of the natural order, we don't exactly see people raised from the dead often, right? That, that would be the natural response to what I just said. True. But the kingdom of God is the real natural order. 
God holds all of creation together, Hebrews tells us, by the power of the Spirit. He was there at the beginning when when creation came into being and the laws of nature were were written and brought into place. And there is a bigger, deeper reality that is the kingdom of God that transcends what we see now, and that reality is breaking into the here and now. That someday we will all be raised. And this is a foretaste of what God is doing in creation, of making all things new. The raising of Jairus' daughter is the taste, the foretaste, the sign that participates in that future kingdom reality that we will experience resurrection in one way or another. And Jesus comes and takes her by the hand and says in Aramaic, Talithako. You notice that? This is one of three times that we get Jesus in the gospel speaking in Aramaic. What that hints to me is that this made a deep, deep impression on those that were present with him. Because everything else is in Greek, but occasionally, these three times, we get Jesus' word in his own natural, uh, everyday tongue. And this week, as I was digging into that term a little bit, I discovered something. It's translated for us, little girl, get up. But it's even more endearing than that. As a matter of fact, when I first discovered kind of what Jesus was getting at, It was on Wednesday of this week, and you know my son Rowan, little Rowan Williams. It was his first birthday, and as is very unusual, I woke up before him. Typically, he's he's our alarm clock, right? At whatever hour that may be, he wakes us up. (laughs) But on his first birthday, I had the great joy and pleasure of being able to sneak in that room and see him sleeping there on his first birthday. Many of you have had that same experience with children, of getting to wake, wake one up and seeing them sleeping so peacefully. And how do you wake that child up? Rowan, happy birthday. Good morning. This is kind of what we get at in the Aramaic. It's an endearing, endearing term from Jesus. Little girl, it's time to get up now. And Jesus takes her hand and says, honey, get up. That's the next chapter in the story. But yet we are in the place of Jairus, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the day profundus when all seems hopeless. But the promise of the gospel and the promise of the kingdom of God is that someday we too will hear from Jesus, honey, get up. I'm making all things new. And it begins here and now. So why didn't Jesus respond when we needed a miracle? He did. But our greatest need was not in lifting all of our circumstances of suffering right now, despite how it feels in that moment. Our greatest need was a freeing from the bondage of our sin and our slavery while we were in our own Egypt. Jesus gave us the miracle and conquered the death that is the fear that hangs over all of us. The hard reality we're faced with is that for some reason all has not been put yet to rights. I don't understand it. I don't know why the kingdom is still coming and is not fully here yet. Why it's a slow inbreaking. I don't know. But the revolution has begun. All has not yet been put to rights, but it started. And just as Mark put one story in the middle of another, we are tasked with remembering where we are in God's grand narrative. In the midst of our pain, remember to look to Jesus. 
When you ask, why not me? I don't understand. Why is it an already but not yet? We just forget where we are in the story. One more thing from Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Romans. To tease this out even further through the rest of Scripture, we hear from Paul, verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, we know that, ready for the bumper sticker? Ready? All things work together for the good of those who love Him. There's your bumper sticker. But we forget the next verse of those who are called according to purposes. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then further down, he says again, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And here's another bumper sticker. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The question for you this morning is not why did I not receive a miracle, but can you turn over your trust to Jesus? It's trusting in Jesus' command to go in peace that he says to the woman. A trust that we will get what we need in this community through the Spirit without having to demand, without having to manipulate or coerce. This morning, I don't know what it is in your life that makes you feel like you've been sidelined in the midst of your pain like Jairus or are crying like the Hebrews, O oh Lord, Oh, Lord, out of the midst I cry to you. Will you choose to non-anxiously trust in the midst of that season, in the person of Jesus? As Corey Ten Boom said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Amen. Amen.